Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. So here we are again, in another episode of the All Things Unity podcast. We are going to continue our journey through Clean Code. And this is part four of a series of podcasts about the book Clean Code by Uncle Bob. And during the first three episodes, we have discussed the first nine chapters of the book. And we have talked about why we need clean code, why it is such an important concept to go by. We've talked about meaningful names, how should you name classes, variables and functions. We've also talked about how to write a function and what standards it should abide. We also discuss comments in code and why most of the comments uh, should be deleted and you should avoid them. Uncle Bob says that comments in code is at best a necessary evil and is simply a failure to express ourselves in code. Next up was chapter 5, formatting. This chapter was all about how to properly format your code so it reads well, like grouping similar concepts together and the concepts of vertical and horizontal openness and density and conceptual affinity and just putting things together that share the same concepts. Then was chapter 6, and it was all about objects and data structures, where we talked about the distinct differences between them, how objects hide implementation details and expose their data through functions, and data structures, they do the exact opposite. They show their internals and they provide public accessors to their data without providing an abstract interface. And then we also discussed error handling and how error handling can be really difficult in Unity 3D since we don't want to start throwing exceptions everywhere because it will impact performance greatly. And next was chapter 8, boundaries. And it was all about how to integrate with third-party code. How can you explore that code by covering it by tests and creating like a facade class around it to minimize the dependencies. And then the final chapter we covered was chapter 9, which was all about unit testing. And as I said before, finding a Unity project that is properly unit tested is very, very rare. And that's for a reason, of course. We've discussed all of these things in the previous episode. So if you have not listened to that, go back and listen to them. And if you have already listened to them, well, fasten your seatbelts and enjoy the ride. And today we're going to dive into the next four chapters of the book. And oh yes, again, four chapters. We are going to look at chapter 10, classes and find out what Uncle Bob has to say about those. We will discuss one of the often returning topics in this book, the single responsibility principle. We will also talk about coupling and cohesion of classes and much more. Then we will also discuss chapter 11, systems. This is an important chapter to understand and since nice system design will have a positive impact on your Unity 3D application. In Unity, we are dependent on a really specific startup sequence of loading scenes and awake and start calls. And in this chapter, we dive into Uncle Bob's advice on how to make nice systems. And I'll try to convert this advice into something tangible that you can apply in a Unity 3D context. Then we have yet another chapter to discuss, and that's chapter 12, Emergence. Uh, what? Well, what, with emergence, uh, Uncle Bob means that your code, your system, evolves and grows. From a tiny little system, a larger system emerges, and you, as a professional game developer, need to be able to manage that in a clean way. 
So in this short five-page chapter, Uncle Bob will give you some advice on how to take on that challenge and slay the spaghetti monster. And at last, we also talk about the last chapter of this book we can meaningfully cover in a podcast, and that is chapter 13, Concurrency. And concurrency is one of these topics I do not want to bother like a starting or junior developer with, but it's the last chapter in this book we can nicely cover in a podcast format. The rest of the book are like case studies and refactoring examples. There's also a chapter about code smells uh, with a lot of examples, but that's also difficult to cover in a podcast. So to make this series complete, I'm going to cover the concurrency chapter anyway. And concurrency is really cool and it can result in some massive performance boost in your game. But it can also be your worst nightmare and melt your brain into a sludge. Like writing concurrent code requires a different mindset since you need to separate the what from the when. But in the latter part of this episode, we are going to dig into the subject, so stay along to get to know it. But before we get there, let's cover chapter 10 to 12 first. So, well, during the past nine chapters of the book, we have focused on writing lines and blocks of code, how you write them well and in a clean manner. We've really, well, we've not really gone further than the scope of a single class. But in the next couple of chapters of the book, we are going to describe uh, the more higher levels of code organization. And I do want to make a little side note here, and that is Uncle Bob wrote an entire book about this called Clean Architecture. And this book dives into far more detail than the X number of chapters in this book. And the Clean Code book only scratches the surface of what Uncle Bob knows and has to say about software design. But okay, nonetheless, the Clean Code book was written far before the Clean Architecture book. But if you are familiar with Clean Architecture, the things I'm going to talk about in this episode are probably familiar to you too. But that's fine, and let's refresh some of that knowledge then. And if this is new, then listen well, because there's some great lessons to be learned from this. So next up is chapter 10, classes. And in an object-oriented language like C-sharp or Java, as in the Clean Code book, one of the main concepts for organizing code is the concept of a class. And the class is a definition of some kind of object that exposes an external interface to interact with it. We already talked about how classes or objects in this matter must always hide their implementation details yet provide a proper interface for interacting with them. And well, in this chapter, it's all about how to write clean classes that are up to the level of quality Uncle Bob wants you to have them. And I can't really remember uh, there being any controversial advice in this chapter since all Uncle Bob is going to talk about are generally accepted standards and best practices. And in the previous chapters, he might have discussed some controversial topics like how a function should be at most four lines of code, for example. So let's start off with the topic of class organization. And Uncle Bob refers to the Java standard convention, but I think we can safely say that in any imperative uh, language or like C family derived languages like C or C++, uh, C Sharp, Java, and maybe even JavaScript, Python, or Ruby, it is standard that a class uh, will start with a list of variables. Like variables are always at the top of your class. 
starting with some private static or constant variables and then putting public uh, variables and properties below that. We have discussed how readability suffers when variables are declared in between the functions if a, in a class in the previous episode. And always declare your instance variables at the top of your class. I don't see this rule or standard broken that often, but when it is, you notice immediately. But luckily in our IDEs nowadays, when you extract some variable from your code by some refactoring tooling, the variables are put at the top of the file automatically. At least that's what uh, Rider does. But I think everyone knows about how you should put variables at the top of your class uh, or your file uh, and not somewhere in between. So let's continue with a nicer topic, a better topic, and that's encapsulation. Uh, yes, this is very important if you want to keep dependencies of your code in check. Classes should hide their implementation details through publicly exposed functions and hide everything else by means of encapsulation. Don't make everything public because it is convenient, quote unquote. Trust me, at some point, all those public functions and variables are going to bite you in the ass and you're going to suffer. At note, this also making things serialized in your inspector private. And I'll remind you that you can expose private fields to Unity uh, in the inspector by putting a serialized field attribute to the field. Never should expose fields to Unity have to be public. And if you find yourself depending on public fields in other game objects, you should be absolutely sure and do your absolute best to untangle that code because if you don't, the pastafarian inside you will feed the spaghetti monster and it will grow into a truly magnificent kraken of the underworld, reaching into code everywhere with its sauce-covered tentacles. <laughs> wow. So I can't stress this enough. Never make public fields just for convenience and always uh, try to think of some other mechanism to reach into that data. And Uncle Bob only has one rule for breaking encapsulation, yet these cases are still very rare and that is when you need to expose something for the sake of testing. He says that sometimes you will need to expose something to be able to reach into it because for testing reasons. So he advises to make things protected or uh, exposed on the package level. And in a C-sharp sense, that would mean flagging it as protected or internal. Personally, what I've also done uh, sometimes before is to, to reach into code uh, by means of reflection. And reflection is very cool and it's often using code uh, generation and such. And with reflection, you can create objects dynamically and you can get information about objects. So for this test example, I might have some player class that has a private reference to his inventory, for example. Uh, and in my test, I might use reflection to get that private reference through a reflection by like a get field or get property call, uh, passing the player object as a reference to the reflection method. And if you don't know about reflection, uh, don't worry, it's not really a general use case you will encounter very often. But having some knowledge about this topics, uh, topic can, yeah, it can come in really handy in some really specific edge cases. And his next advice is that classes should be small. And we have all heard this advice before, I betcha. And in the book, Uncle Bob shows an example of a class that has like 70 
public facing functions. 70, yeah. It's a true monstrosity, and even the spaghetti monster might be scared of this one. The funny part uh, about this class is that it's called Super Dashboard. And I mean, when you read that name, uh, I do expect it to have 70 public functions, right? <laughs> I mean, it simply has too many responsibilities. But isn't that the nature of a dashboard? But to be honest, the super prefix in this case refers to the dashboard being some kind of base class for other classes to inherit from. It's not super in the sense of Superman being super. But still, like 70 public facing functions is far too many. And this was a really nice segue into the next topic of the book, uh, and that's the single responsibility principle, the SRP. And it's a bit of a misnomer, since it is defined as a class or a module should have one and only one reason to change. So a class should only have responsibilities towards one stakeholder, and thus have only one reason to change. And Uncle Bob says that the SRP is one of the most important principles of OO design, object-oriented design that is, and yet it is also one of the most abused class design principles. And we regularly encounter classes that do too many things. But why? Uncle Bob has his suspicions uh, that getting things working and delivering something good or bad in time is seen as more important than many cases. So code quality will suffer because of pressure and deadlines. So refactoring for cleanliness is often uh, seen as a second class citizen in software development. And I think I agree with him. I mean, how often have you been pressured into getting shit done before a specific date and you cut major corners, built in dirty hacks just to reach an impossible deadline? I know I have. I mean, I, I've certainly done that. And then uh, often uh, you're not in the position to return to that code and refactor all the dirty crap to a clean state and just have fed the spaghetti monster once again. And Uncle Bob also has a rule for this. Never ask permission to do refactoring. Never put it on a schedule or make like tickets for it. Refactoring is part of your job. It's you being a professional and delivering to the best of your ability. So you might cut corners to reach some uh, impossible deadline uh, put onto you by management. But once you have delivered, you dive back into that code and undo all the damage you have done. Trust me, it is worth it in the end. And I've had many cases where I needed to make some deadline all of a sudden because like the marketing team promised something impossible while talking to a client. So you fix it in a hurry, deliver, and then dive in and maybe even remove all the code and start over. Don't be afraid to do this. It's part of your job. You are a professional and because of that, you will want to deliver good quality code and systems. Because if you leave those dirty hacks in the code, you will suffer in the future. But always try to stick to your principles and deliver good quality code. Don't be afraid to say no to an impossible deadline. Tell him or her it's impossible unless you cut feature X, Y or Z. Find some middle ground where everyone is happy. But yeah, let's turn back to the SRP. Uncle Bob says that we should build systems that contain many small classes, not just a system uh, consisting out of a few big ones. 
Each small class encapsulates a single responsibility as a single reason to change and it collaborates with other classes to form a system. So don't throw all your business logic into your game manager class. Generally, but not always, but in general, classes with adjectives like processor, manager or controller or uh, like even service added to them don't follow the SRP because they hold too many responsibilities. Keep an eye out on that. Next up is the topic of cohesion. And I bet you have probably heard the concept of high cohesion but low coupling in an object-oriented context. It's one of these terms that are always thrown around by consultants or teachers of uh, object-oriented design practices. But what is it and why is it important uh, for a clean system? Well, cohesion is the concept that a class or module is well designed around a single purpose. This relates to the SRP again. So cohesion says that a class should be designed for a single goal or purpose. Low coupling, on the other hand, says that a class must be independent of other classes in the system. And a very simple example I can give you are, for example, the collection types in C-sharp. So for example, a list class is maximally cohesive. It serves one purpose and it only has functions to match that specific purpose. But it is also lowly coupled since it does not have any dependencies upon many other classes. Imagine that developers of C-sharp would have combined the list class with like the dictionary class into one class. I bet it would have been very difficult to work with because they are simply two separate concepts. I mean, a list uh, only has one generic parameter, but a dictionary has two. Maybe this is a bad example. Uh, so let's say that C-sharp devs uh, combined the concept of a stack and a queue maybe. Uh, that would be really, really be confusing, wouldn't it? I mean, you could pop and dequeue it. And those were just some really stupid examples, but there's probably classes in your own code base that have this symptom without you knowing it even. So how do you keep cohesion? Well, we write many small classes. Uncle Bob says that when you notice that when you have a class that has a couple of functions and only a couple of functions uh, touch some specific member variables, you can extract those functions, including the variables, out into a new class to increase cohesion of things. And in the book, Uncle Bob shows an example of how this process works. So if you want to see it, uh, go, go to the book and please check it out. The next topic is about you should always design for change. He says uh, that Change is continual, uh, or as many people have called it, the only constant is change. He says that every change subjects a risk to your system and that the system might no longer work afterwards. So making sure you can cope with these changes is of great importance. And we organize systems in a clean way to support change and reduce their risks. He then shows a simple, nice example of how you would design for change. And he has an example of a large class that exposes functions to run SQL queries. So it's a massive class that has functions like create, insert, and like select all. And he says that when you need to add another function, you must touch that class and thus there is a risk uh, of you breaking existing code. 
So we said that you could refactor this class into multiple small classes by using a simple command pattern. So we would create an abstract base class or interface and then make new classes for each type uh, of query that there is. So there's actual classes called like create SQL, insert SQL and delete all SQL uh, to be in line with the previous example. And I really like this uh, approach personally. Uh, I do this kind of design very often. That's A, because I'm a big fan of using the command pattern to separate things, keep things simple. And B, because command patterns easily match with the use case driven approach. And you could follow the SRP by doing this. But there's again nuances in the Unity 3D context. If the particular use case is in code that highly impacts the frame rate, then I won't separate it out into use case classes because you may allocate too much memory and generate too much garbage. And as I said before, you will notice that frame drop when the garbage collector collects. But you can experiment with that and yeah, see what fits best. Just make sure that you isolate changes in your design. But I think we have covered enough about this chapter uh, classes. We covered class organization, encapsulation, and why to keep classes small. And we also discussed cohesion to maintain small classes that fit a single purpose for low coupling and isolating changes. And next up is chapter 11, systems. And now this chapter is a bit more high level than all the previous chapters in the book we have discussed. It's more about abstract matters and to make like clean software design and architecture. So if you follow all the advice we have talked about in this previous podcast about clean code, you could potentially still end up with a spaghetti monster code base because you have the dependencies all wrong. This chapter will dive deeper in how to design systems. So let's have a look. And Uncle Bob starts this chapter off with an analogy of how we would build a city. Would we manage all of this uh, by ourselves? Uh, probably not, right? Even managing an existing city is far too much for a single human. The process works because there's multiple people involved, all doing specialized tasks that can be abstracted to fit a bigger picture. For example, there is an infrastructure team and a law enforcement team. These are abstracted now and they have responsibilities, but we don't need the details at this moment. This also works in software or, or in a game context, tied to construct your game from abstract components of which you do not need to know concrete types. So his first piece of advice is to always separate uh, constructing things from using things. So you might have a class that instantiates a game object, but then you also directly uses it. This is a bad practice because you can only create or instantiate things if you know the concrete details and types. If you only know the interface of the abstract class of the thing you want to use, you cannot simply create it. On a language level, it is impossible. You cannot instantiate or create interfaces or abstract classes. So you, you would need to add like a factory pattern, for example, to create these objects. For example, based on some config file, you might need to instantiate a weapon for your enemy. So you need to parse that file and create the correct one with the correct stats and ammunition, for example. 
If you put all that logic into the enemy class, your enemy will be dependent on all weapon types you have in your game. But if you create like a simple factory class that takes a config and returns an object of like I weapon, then you have broken these dependencies and only your factory class is dependent on the concrete types. This is a very nice design. And oh, um, for those who do not know what a factory is, it is a design pattern for creating complex objects. I always give the following example. Imagine that you have a massive factory that makes cars. And this factory is also like a joint group factory for multiple car brands, let's say uh, like Volkswagen and Audi. So when one of these needs to be created, a project sheet goes into one end of the factory and the correct car comes out of the other end of the factory. This project sheet describes like the make of the car, the brand, the color, what entertainment systems it has, and maybe if it has like heated chairs or some other fancy luxury features. Creating this is all very complex and that's why we abstract it away inside the factory class. And thus we only care about the project sheet and the end result that comes uh, from the creation process. So in programming terms, that config could be a scriptable object or some simple JSON file. And this factory is a class that creates cars and re returns uh, like objects of type iCar with references to things like iEntertainment System and iChair, for example. The factory now has all the intricate and concrete dependencies to create a specific car, a specific entertainment system and specific chairs. We don't care about these concrete implementations when we ask for it. So when you, for example, need to instantiate the correct weapon for your enemy, don't instantiate it in a method inside the enemy class because it will depend on all the concrete objects that are needed to actually create that weapon. So it is really important, uh, it's a really important design concept you need to know. And if what I just explained uh, just does not make sense, uh, pause my beautiful voice again and go check out the abstract factory pattern uh, on Wikipedia or something. And I'm sure that if you have never used this package, uh, pattern before, you will quickly find out how powerful it is and how it makes your code a lot more clean than it already is. Uncle Bob also says that the startup sequence is a concern that every application must address because it is during startup that you need to spread and set up your dependencies. And this can be very difficult in a Unity 3D project because, well, there is no proper startup sequence. It's just all the cumulative awake and starts uh, functions that are in your scene, right? Well, you should design your own startup sequence. And I have used three different approaches for this, uh, which I will uh, explain to you guys. And my first approach is to uh, have an empty scene uh, at the start of your game. Uh, this is like a, a very simple scene that contains like a logo or some kind of a splash screen, for example. But it also generates like the main service hub or wrapper that contains your controllers or managers. Um, this hub is also flagged as don't destroy on load. So it does not get destroyed when switching scenes. And now you have a way to inject your dependencies. So it's, this is a central way of 
initialization uh, you can distribute it if uh, but you will find that you will have many don't destroy on load objects in your scene so it's best to make them a child of some bigger object that is flagged my second approach is to well simply use the awake to set up dependencies so you can use the awake only for setting dependencies and if you uh, and then use the start function for getting dependencies so you do initialize all your services in an awake call and then you can access them at the start of any game object in the scene so this can be more of a distributed way of uh, initialization since you do not need like a, a, a hub uh, like I talked about in the previous example. And the last, uh, my personal favorite, is to use a function that is annotated with like a runtime initialize on load attribute. And this function is statically called by the Unity 3D engine just before a scene loads. So if you annotate a method, uh, just make sure that the contents of that method are only called once. And you can easily create an entry point to your startup sequence for a game with this. And also note, uh, that you can use this same strategy for any other scene that might load. So if some scene requires a different dependency injections, create another function and use the scene manager to check whether the scene that is loaded uh, is the correct one, and then execute the logic in that function. Um, there's a shit ton of more approaches, uh, I suppose, to create like a smooth setup sequence for your game. Uh, tell me about your favorite one. I'm pretty interested. And I personally like the last one that I described since it gives me the most control through code and it does not uh, go through the engine per se. So the important concept is, is that your startup or what is also called like the main or program class is the most dirtiest class in your system because it holds all the concrete dependencies. It has to create these factories and some other concrete objects but then injects these objects as abstract objects into the things that need them. And sometimes things cannot be injected since main does not have access. So you need to come up with some clever solution like using a static class to access things. And it's not the nicest way, but it's far better than a singleton since you can inject different objects during testing uh, as well and constructing things is separated from using things. We all talked about that a minute ago. Next, Uncle Bob talks about the D in solid, the dependency inversion principle. Let's call it the dip from now on. This is like my favorite principle of the solid acronym. It is at the root of good OO design and without this principle, your OO code will become that spaghetti monster I have referenced many times now. And through the, the dip, you are able to turn source code dependencies into runtime dependencies and thus make your system isolated. It took me quite some time to fully understand and grasp the concept and the power of this principle, but once you get it, you can cut through that spaghetti monster like a hot knife going through butter. And I think uh, if you have taken some computer science classes or tutorials or whatever on object-oriented programming, people will always tell you that you need to program against abstractions and not concrete types. 
since it will lead to having a more understandable system. And I wrote some blogs about Solid before and I'll put them in the show notes. So if you're interested, go check them out. Or at least check the blog about the dependency inversion principle if you're not quite sure about what I'm talking. And trust me, it's worth your time investigating this principle because once you grasp it, you will be able to untangle that spaghetti monster. And the next subject he talks about is all systems need to scale. And in this context, scale refers to growing your small game architecture into something bigger. So this is not about scaling in a user sense, like vertical or horizontal scaling to handle more requests, for example. He means that your system must be able to scale properly without making a mess. You might start out with a small game, and then you add some more gameplay systems, maybe like an inventory, then a gearing system. And so your, your character can wear stuff from your inventory. And next you need a shop to buy and sell gear and the list goes on. And I think you know what I mean, right? And the thing is that your architecture must support all these changes being attached to it. And if all of these are truly separate systems, there will be some awkward coupling here and there. Remember, in the previous episode, we talked about creating facade classes for third-party code. So your facade can live in the domain of your game, but implement the third-party package like an inventory system. So you have an abstract facade that serves as an adapter into some other code. So by doing it this way, you can inject as many external systems into your game architecture. Just make sure your game architecture somehow is aware that it is happening. And that might sound weird, but if, for example, you do like a find object of type in some random class to find like a third-party inventory system, you will now have created a hard source code dependency and your game architecture is unaware of this reference since uh, find object of type is a unity utility, not one you wrote your own. So there's no way for any other class to know that the query happened for to find that object. It's not governed, maybe the best way to describe it. Make sure that the package is injected through the startup sequence of your game somehow. And next, Uncle Bob talks about cross-cutting concerns. And he gives a simple example about how you should not combine business code with like database access, for example. Separate this out and create DTOs or like active records even. Remember them? They are specifically designed for this purpose. But yeah, what he means is that you should not make a God class that contains everything, but we have talked about this in the previous chapter too. Classes must adhere to the single responsibility principle in order, in order to create nice systems. If you follow this principle, you will not have cross-cutting concerns in your code, but you will have to separate them out nicely. Generally, if you follow Uncle Bob Solid's principles, you can't go wrong with object-oriented design. And the next subject is rather interesting to me, and one I have not heard about in a very long time, is how to properly use Java dynamic proxies, which follow a proxy design pattern. But a Java proxy, allows you to wrap existing classes into another one and then invoke method on these uh, wrapped classes through means of reflection magic or even like 
bytecode or uh, intermediate language. This is rather complex and very, very slow. Uh, doing any kind of re reflection magic is always slow, by the way. And I've used this pattern in some very, very limited cases. And I can remember we bought like an asset on the asset store for implementing like real nice loading screens with like mini games and videos in them and everything. However, the base classes for the loading screens uh, and their components were all encapsulated, um, meaning like much of the logic inside was private. I could not extend it, but I needed to extend this logic. So I created a couple of proxy classes for them because I needed to get those requirements in and I did not want to wait like I did not want to change the third party's code since if I update the package and uh, my work would be gone. And these proxies use reflection uh, to call certain methods in the third party code. And although it worked well, it still feels dirty and I don't really like the solution. But in some very, very rare edge cases, proxies can be a real lifesaver. So remember this. If you find yourself with some code that is poorly extendable, you can write a proxy class for that and use runtime refraction to call these methods or properties. But you should use this pattern really, really rarely. And next, Uncle Bob says you should strive to build your domain out of POJOs. Uh, what the hell are POJOs? Well, it's an, an acronym for plain old Java objects. And in our case, since we write C-sharp, it would be POCOs. But what are they, you might wonder? Well, they are classes that have no outgoing dependencies to any frameworks or external libraries. So it's just a plain old C-sharp class written by you and not referencing any external stuff like the Unity engine namespace or any other namespaces than like system uh, or your own. When we build the domain out of these POCOs, it will become far more simpler and easier to manage. Because when you do this, you can push your dependencies to the edge of your system. So only the parts that need like database access actually has it uh, through some polymorphic interface, of course. Or when uh, the, some part of your code needs UI, uh, it only has access to the UI. This is some great advice, by the way. Try to follow this rule and make your business code, the family jewels, uh, not have any dependencies on any other code uh, that you do not own or you do not manage. And something you get when using POCOs in your domain is that you can optimize decision making since your design is modular and concerns are separated. They make decentralized decision making possible. Like a, a Comments you will often hear in software architecture talks or books is to postpone an architectural decision as long as you can until the last responsible moment. And designing a system out of POCOs will definitely help you a lot with that decision because you can build your system through tests, for example, and later connect like a database or a UI or even Unity 3D or any other infrastructure. But we also need to be realistic here. We are game devs and we chose Unity 3D as our engine. Surely we want to have some logic coupled to the engine since it makes our lives far more easier. But for example, if you're building a system for your inventory, it can be decoupled from Unity 
And just the UI, the Moni behaviors or UI elements are even dependent on Unity 3D Engine. Your actual business logic for that inventory does not need to know about Unity 3D. So when you need to make the decision to make the inventory a 3D inventory made from 3D objects, a classic UI made by a canvas, or like a UI made with the UI toolkit, you can postpone that decision till the last responsible moment. This is what Uncle Bob means with optimizing decision making and me personally have taken this approach many times and once you get the hang of it you will notice you can change things more easily and create very nice systems that do not depend on Unity 3D and it promotes testability. And next he talks about domain specific languages. But this relates more to domain-driven design practices, uh, practices than actual uh, uh, than an actual DSL. I think in domain-driven design, uh, this is referenced as ubiquitous language, and he says your project should uh, be built with domain objects that every stakeholder understands. I think uh, I talked about this in the first episode of this series. Uh, I made the case that when choosing a name for something. Uh, all stakeholders must agree with that name or you might up uh, you might end up with the confusion about uh, like what certain classes mean like a player class uh, is it a player playing the game or even is it uh, like a player that plays audio or, or or a video player so make sure your domain is known with everyone uh, and have some consensus about that but yeah okay that's a wrap for chapter 11, Systems. We have talked about a lot of things. We discussed how and why we should always separate construction and using logic from each other so we don't end up with concrete dependencies everywhere. We also discussed to decouple your startup sequence from the rest of your system and use factories in strategic places. We discussed a bit about dependency injection and how to scale your game. We also discussed how to deal with cross-cutting concerns and what the hack proxy classes are. Remember them? They are clever reflection hacks to drill into third-party code, for example, where you should not have access to. It's a clever pattern that can sometimes be a real lifesaver in some very rare edge cases in your game uh, and in software development overall. Uh, and we finished with a short discussion about optimizing decision-making and the need for a ubiquitous language. And since we still have a little bit of time left, let's continue with another chapter. So the next chapter is a short one and it's only five pages long and it's about emergence, whatever that means, right? The chapter starts off with a section called getting clean via emergent design and he asked the question if there were rules that we could follow that help you create good software. This is a rhetorical question, of course, because Uncle Bob immediately refers to the four rules of simple design created by Ken Beck, and they go as follows and are given in order of importance. And a design is simple if, rule one, it runs all the tests. We have discussed this in great length in the previous episode and when your code runs a shit ton of tests you can easily change or extend it uh, and just like rerun the test cases it's that simple and rule two uh, a design is simple if 
it contains no duplication. A duplication uh, in code is a horrible code smell that should be dealt with. However, there are nuances. Again, some code that looks duplicated does many of the same things. Sometimes it's not duplicated code since it belongs to some other use cases or even some other domain. You should not abstract this out or even remove the duplicated parts. But we will uh, talk more about this a little bit later. Let's discuss these rules first. Rule three then. A design is simple if it expresses the intent of the programmer. Well, this is what this entire book is about. We write clean code so we can more easily express ourselves in code and not have to write horrible comments everywhere, for example. Then rule four. A design is simple if it maximizes the number of classes and methods. This feels a bit contradictory, right? I mean, maximizes the number of classes and methods. This feels like a competition, right? But we talked about some of the solid principles already and the SRP, the single responsibility principle. And it emphasizes that you keep uh, classes small and cohesive. And this is what rule four means essentially. But let's dive a little bit deeper into these rules now. So rule one was a design is simple if it runs all the tests. And as I said, if you have a system covered in tests, you can really easily change it since you just, well, run the tests again. And if they pass, your change is correct. And if not, you control Z long enough to get to that initial state or maybe do a git reset. It's that simple. But we also talked about the nuances of tests in a Unity 3D system. In Unity 3D, you simply cannot meaningfully cover every single thing with tests. Some things are just too coupled with Unity and separating them will lead to inexpressive code and might even result in performance penalties. But I do agree with Uncle Bob that having lots of tests give you, gives you trust into that code and trust you can easily change it. But he says that a system might be perfectly designed on paper, but there is no way to verify that design, uh, like that it actually works until you write it. And in Unity 3D with testing, um, I may not have talked about it in the previous episode, but testing goes far deeper than just functional testing, right? I mean, you might uh, create the, like you might design and create the perfect system but if it's not fun to play you will still need to change that and you cannot um, express fun in unit tests so there's a nuance again then next was rule two and it was about a design being simple when it contains no duplication and this is a tricky one since some people will tell you that duplicated code must always be removed, abstracted and reused. But in some cases there is code that is written the same, it looks the same, it does the same, but it is in fact different because it belongs to different domains. This is very important to understand and I'll give you a simple example. In a system I'm currently building uh, are a couple of objects that can get uh, a state called, like they can get uh, into a deprecated state. 
so if a like a content editor decides to deprecate things these uh, objects can be put in this state however uh, how this system should respond to these ob uh, objects becoming deprecated is different in all use cases and depending on the type of the object and it has not uh, been decided yet what this behavior ought to be so could make some base classes for use cases for each of these classes. But at this point in time, it makes no sense to me to like to do that since 90, I'm 90% sure of something that the use cases that deal with this deprecated object is, is like separate from each other. So although this, they seem related, they will result in far different behaviors. So what I'm trying to say is not all duplicated code is an actual duplicate. And if you always generalize all duplicated code, you will notice that you will always depend on some core module or library, which is okay, of course, but don't just refactor all duplication from your code uh, base for the sake of removing, removing duplication, since there are nuances with this. Not all duplicated code is an actual duplicate. I'm not sure how to identify this quickly, but I think this comes with experience. Let's continue with rule three. A design is simple when it expresses the intent of the programmer. Well, I think if you have listened to the past episodes of this podcast, you know what is meant by this rule. It means that the code is clean and readable. And you know, by simply reading the code, what the code does. It's not obscure, it's not cryptic, it's not a bowl of spaghetti. You use lots of small functions to create decoupled and cohesive code and make sure everything is named according to what fits the domain and known design patterns. It's what this book is all about and we have talked about it for the past like four hours or something, I guess. But let's continue with rule four then. Rule 4 states that a design is simple when it maximizes classes and, and methods. This might feel contradictory, right? I mean, maximizes classes and methods, that sounds like you should create classes and methods for everything you see. And that might lead to one big confusing cesspool of randomly named functions. But what is meant by this rule is that you should program with a single responsibility principle in mind and thus do not create classes that answer to two or more, or more stakeholders. These classes should be small and cohesive and avoid the problems of duplication. So that's it already for this chapter and it's yeah, as I said, it's a short one. And a key takeaway from this chapter is that you should keep your code simple. We discussed the four rules created by Ken Beck, which sound easy, but are uh, in practice, they sometimes are difficult to adhere to. But it's in everyone's best interest that you follow them. And yes, that also means that manager who is breathing down your neck who wants things finished on time, it's in his best interest as well that you write simple code, create tests, and do not uh, like introduce duplication. He might think it's not important in the short term, but in the long term, he will also reap the benefits of that. Remember it. And yeah, let's talk about another chapter of this book concurrency and i remember in the first episode that i said i'm not sure if i was going to spend time on this chapter but i think i'll do it anyway for multiple reasons um this is an old book and it's about java 
multi-threading has become a very important concept, quote-unquote, recently, because Moore's law stagnated. Moore's law says that every 18 months the CPU power doubles. It has been this way for a very long time in the past, but for about 10 years now that is no longer the case. So because of that, only in recent years, there is much attention being given to multi-threading, because it's a one way to improve the throughput of your system. And in the past, to make your system faster, you just waited 18 months and you have a free performance boost. But it's no longer like that. So what I'm trying to say is, because multi-threading has become such an important topic only over the past couple of years, the abstractions and utilities to use have only greatly improved over the past couple of years. So in C-sharp, we have this awesome async await logic. But that's not in Java, and certainly not in the book. And the second reason is that these podcasts about clean are about clean code, and they are mostly aimed at beginning Unity devs. And as a beginner, you are probably not dabbling with multi-threaded code, so the timing feels a bit off. And reason number three is that multi-threading in Unity 3D can be very difficult since the Unity 3D API can only be accessed from the main thread, and thus it is not thread safe. So I can't remember if any of the subjects that are in this chapter are going to apply in the Unity 3D context, but we will find out soon enough. However, with the help of C-sharp's awesome async await logic, we can really simplify threading in Unity 3D, since it does offer support for it. So despite these reasons, I'm still going to cover this uh, chapter of the book, since it is the only chapter left we can meaningfully cover in the podcast. The book uh, has some more chapters where Uncle Bob shows uh, how to refactor code to fit a clean code style, and these chapters have a lot of source code, and thus I cannot cover them in a podcast without confusing everyone. But this chapter about concurrency is one with some practices in it, so if I cover this one, I have covered all chapters of the book I can meaningfully cover uh, and thus the series is complete. You get it? So let's dive into chapter 13, concurrency. And on the first page of this chapter, there's a really nice quote by James O. Copeland, which says, oh, I may have butchered that name, but which says that, I, and I quote, uh, objects are abstraction for processes and threads are abstractions of schedule. Isn't that a nice observation? I mean, he's totally right, right? I mean, through threads, we schedule different operations that are executed by objects. In an object-oriented language, of course, that is. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty nice quote. And Uncle Bob starts this chapter off with a nice observation of his own, and I totally agree. He says that, and I quote, Writing clean concurrent programs is hard, very hard. It's much easier to write code that executes in a single thread. It is also easy to write multi-threaded code that looks fine on the surface, but is broken on a deeper level. Such code works fine until your system is placed under stress. I mean, does that sound familiar to you? It certainly does to me. But luckily, we have got nice language support for threads in C-sharp now, which makes things uh, much more easy than the classic threading abstractions. 
which you can still use by the way. And he also says there is a concurrency tutorial in the book, which you can check out as well, since the topic of clean concurrency is for a, a book of its own. And I'm pretty sure that book has not yet been written, but maybe we will see it somewhere in the future. Although I highly doubt it, since Uncle Bob writes a lot of Clojure now instead of Java, and in Clojure the multi-threading model is far different and far more easy. But yeah, let's continue with the clean code book now. He then asked the question, why do we use concurrency? And he says it's about uh, a decoupling strategy for separating what gets done from when it gets done. And in a single thread program, the what and the when are tightly coupled. It is very easy, for example, to debug single threaded code. You can set breakpoints and they will be caught in order. With multi-threaded code, these breakpoints might not be caught in order, depending on where you put them, of course. And he also says that this decoupling through threading can really improve the throughput of your system. So decoupling uh, through um, multi-threading will turn your program that runs into a giant loop into separate programs all running in different loops. And Unity does this as well, right? I mean, imagine if your game logic would be on the same thread as physics and rendering and UI. Would that perform your thing? Uh, I guarantee it would not. So multi-threading is a very big performance boost and it will bring some new degrees of complexity. And yeah, next Uncle Bob uh, wants to bust some myths about concurrency and he currently listed seven of them. Let's check these out for a minute. And he starts off by repeating, multi-threading is hard and you should always consider these misconceptions about concurrency. And his first myth is concurrency always improves performance. <laughs> yeah, this is a common myth, I think. Concurrency can sometimes increase performance, but not always. It really depends on how much interactions and waiting uh, there is between those threads. So imagine you have a naive concurrency model where you would, let's say, write out a file on some other thread. If your main thread would like have to wait until that file is written out before you can continue, uh, uh, you will create a large lag spike. And this might be a bad example, uh, but I mean, you can write a massively concurrent program, but if your scheduling and coordination is not right, you might not see that much of a performance increase. But let's look at myth two. And it says, design does not change when writing concurrent systems. Well, and this is just flat out wrong, right? Maybe in C Sharp, when we uh, use a lot of async await, we do not have to change our design that much, but still, we are uh, we will it will be changed um, it will be changed and co when compared to like the same code that would run single threadly because uh, usually decoupling the what from the when will change uh, like the way your game is designed you may also see this effect with coroutines right i mean when you use coroutines your system design is different than for example putting the log logic in a system like in an update loop i mean and no, I'm not advising to abuse the update loop for all kinds of logic that would be executed elsewhere. And rule number three says, um, 
Understanding concurrency issues is not important when working with a container, such as a web or EGB container. Yeah, I agree. I al it's always important to know what you are working with to some degree, right? There should not be any magic involved in your own system. I get that you will depend on some other kinds of software that might seem like magic to you, but everything you build on your own should not be magic to you or like unknown to you, no matter if it's about threading or any kinds of other logic, like for example, dependency injection or like database ORM mappings. And rule four is that concurrency incurs some overhead, both in performance and overhead. Uh, that's interesting, right? It incurs performance as well as overhead. And he's right. You will have some overhead with managing all these threads, but you will also get some performance if done right. And rule five is that correct concurrency is complex, even for simple problems. And again, he's perfectly right. I mean, even for a simple multi-threaded piece of code that writes and reads files to disk, you need to manage what thread uh, has the file currently opened and is writing to it. If you don't, you will get like a, sh a file sharing violation exception. So it always requires you to think about these kinds of issues, how simple your problem also uh, seems to be. And next, he says that concurrency bugs aren't usually repeatable. So they are often ignored as a one-offs instead of the true defects they are. And this is a nice one, isn't it? I've run into this myself. Concurrent code can be really, really difficult to test and debug. So reproducing some weird bug or exception can be really, really difficult. Don't underestimate this. You also need to consider the fact that if you are using async await, exceptions might not like bubble up to the main thread once you are thrown in a subthread. So if an exception is thrown in an async task, the exception might not be shown on the main thread and thus you don't even see it. So make sure you cover tasks with a proper try catch statements for like aggregate exceptions. And make sure you catch them because you will find yourself debugging this. And yeah, this really sucks. And the last myth is that concurrency often requires fundamental change in design strategy. And I think we, discuss, we have discussed this shortly already. Uh, separating the what from the when will most likely change the design of the code of the entire system. And async await tries to minimize the amount of change, but still, we have to change our system based on this. It's just a different mindset when things are happening async uh, or even in parallel. And to mitigate some of the difficulties and problems, Uncle Bob wrote down some concurrency defense principles. And he named the single responsibility principle once again. He says to keep your concurrent code separate from your single threaded code. Don't start mixing them up. He says that concurrent, uh, concurrency related code has its own life cycle of development, chains and tuning. It also has its own challenges which are different and more often difficult than non-threaded code. He then also makes the case that you should limit the scope of the data. If multiple threads uh, are reading or writing to the same data, it can lead to issues in object-oriented programs. And Rich Hickey, the creator of Clojure, has a really nice name for this, and he calls it 
place-oriented programming, because in object-oriented programming languages, we mostly have mutable data structures which point to a specific place in memory. And Uncle Bob's advice is to protect these places by using special like language features like locks, mutexes, or semaphores, among others. And he also says that making things uh, effectively concurrent may, late, may lead to some duplicated code, which violates the dry principle, uh, like the don't repeat yourself principle. But in this case, it is acceptable. And I think we discussed this uh, before somewhere, that not all duplicated code is an actual duplicate. And in the sense that it does the same thing and has the same responsibilities, but it is in fact something different. And his recommendation is thus to use data encapsulation as much as you can to severely limit the access of any data that may be shared. And this next piece of advice goes a bit further on the place-oriented programming. And he says that in order to write good concurrent code, you must avoid sharing data as much as you can, but use copies of data as a means of data sharing. So using immutable, unchangeable data so structures in your concurrent code is good practice. And a simple change you might apply is to use structs instead of classes, although structs can still hold references to mutable data structures. So when you use immutable objects in your concurrent code, you can avoid data synchronization altogether. And it will also make your code much more simpler, and you will make it easier to reason about what the code is doing. And next, Uncle Bob says you should um, have some knowledge about the libraries you're using that facilitate concurrent uh, constructs like collections. And .NET has some really great support for concurrent collection types like concurrent queues, stacks, dictionaries, and back. And I've used them all before and they work really nicely and really great. And if you have not, I strongly encourage you to do so. Using these concurrent collection types in combination with uh, C-sharp's language support for async await will allow you to create some reasonably elegant concurrent code. And he also says that you check out some common and popular mechanism like producer and consumer patterns based on cues to decouple systems from each other. And if you do not know about this pattern, it can be a real lifesaver for concurrent code. So the producer-consumer pattern separates concurrent entities from each other based on a simple concurrent queue. So producers will enqueue data in the queue and consumers will dequeue data from it. This way, your producers are decoupled from your consumers, making them scalable and independent. And next, he says you should uh, also separate writing from reading logic. This is great advice. I mean, you can uh, you can also create like specific locking mechanisms based on a reading uh, and writing, which will also help you a great deal. And the thing is that reading uh, does often not block a threat, but writing does. So if you separate these concepts, you can greatly increase the throughput of your system since you can have multiple reads going on, yet only one write action. So make sure to separate this. It will also simplify your code since you can apply the single responsibility principle again more active effectively. Uh, see writing and reading as separate responsibilities and don't violate the SRP by combining them. Next, 
is a more subtle advice. Uh, and that is you should be aware of dependencies in code that you could create by uh, blocking threads, like locking them. When you lock a thread on a specific piece of data, uh, your other code will be dependent on that lock. So when you lock something, you can introduce things like deadlocks or live locks. And a deadlock is when two or more threads are waiting for each other to finish their task, but both have locked a resource and thus cannot continue. This makes your code freeze in place and well lock in place. And a live lock is when threads are able to continue but very, very slowly, because they continually run into locked code, which slows them down immensely. These are things to consider, and if you are going to do multi-threading, make sure you read up on the latest materials and al like algorithms used, um, because it's probably harder than you think. And next, there is a section about testing concurrent code. And this can be a real bitch in Unity 3D, since the Unity test tools do not support async test cases. So what you will have to do is write some converters for tasks to coroutines, because Unity 3 does support the Unity test annotated iEnumerator functions. Writing an extension function for this is pretty easy. You just yield the coroutine as long as the task is, uh, does not have an exception or it has not run uh, till completion. These are properties you can really uh, you can access really easily for any given tasks. Uh, so to cheat the Unity test to run async, convert your async logic into an, an I enumerator and run it that way. And Uncle Bob gives a couple of nice recommendations for concurrent tests. First write tests that have the potential to expose problems and run them frequently with different programmatic configurations and system configurations and load. If tests ever fail, track, the, uh, track down the failure. Don't ignore the failure just because uh, it will pass on a subsequent run. This is some great advice, but also really hard to follow up on. I mean, if sometimes your tests fail, you are probably uh, it's probably really hard to reproduce it and thus track down. But he basically says to not ignore system failures uh, and see them as one-offs. If you can embed such a one-off in a test, you can see that failing every once in a while and it's no longer a one-off. And thus, you should try and figure out what's going on and fix that bug. And his next recommendation is to always get your non-threaded code working first. Don't try to solve uh, both single and multi-threaded code in the same sitting or like programming session. Make sure the single threaded code works fine in and of itself and then focus on the multi-threaded code. This will reduce the problem domain and space. He also specifically says to create lots of POCOs. Remember them? Plain old C-sharp objects? These are objects that have no dependencies or any external libraries or frameworks other than your own namespaces. He says that these POCOs should be unaware that they are being accessed from multiple threads. And that might sound weird, uh, since you might sometimes need to add like locking mechanisms in place and thus uh, add these directly into your POCOs. But this is pretty rare, I guess, um, since you will most likely create special objects for multi-threaded code anyway. But it's a really good practice, I think, at least. And he then says to always try and make your current code tunable. So for example, 
allow your code to accept a variable number of producers and consumers. This will make your performance scalable out of the box and it allows you to test under different configurations. And he also says you should run with more threads than there are processors. This will allow you to check whether a task uh, well, it will allow to check whether task swapping on the same core is implemented correctly and thus you can find out deadlocks more quicker. And wow, this is some great advice and I've never thought about this even after reading this book about five or six times now. It's weird that I only now notice how good of an advice this is. It's amazing. And, and next he says you should run uh, your tests on multiple platforms, for example, Windows and OS X, Android and iOS. And this is something you will have to do when you deploy anyway. So why not run the tests on multiple platforms? And for Windows and OS X, this is pretty easy since you can run the tests in the editor on your local machine or maybe in some like Docker container you hook up in your CI pipeline. And running your tests on mobile platforms is more tricky to be honest with you, uh, it's not something I have ever done before. And I'm not even sure that you can run these tests directly on a mobile device. Uh, if someone knows, please let me know and I'll check it out. And the next thing Uncle Bob describes is to build in mechanisms to influence the threading logic. And a simple example would be to force some object to have a higher priority to be processed by your concurrent code. This way, you can play around with these exposed functions and try to break your concurrent code in tests. So you can try to force variables into your system by tweaking the settings during your test run. Just make sure you do not uh, use these functions in production code, unless you need it, of course. So to sum this chapter up, do not underestimate concurrent code. It is often more difficult than you first think. But once you get it working properly, you can get a really nice significant performance boost. I mean, look at the massive performance boost the ECS gives, a topic we haven't even really discussed or touched upon in this topic. Well, I only mention it now, but yeah, the ECS is a very promising project for Unity 3D multithreading. But nonetheless, the ECS is worthy of its own podcast, since it's a big topic and it has a really large impact on how you design and create your game architecture. So we will get back on this topic uh, of the ECS in a future episode, I promise. But okay, that's a wrap for chapter 13, concurrency. And I've had yeah, a lot of fun talking about this since I really like the concept of concurrency. And I wrote my master's thesis about concurrency and scheduling systems, which I'm not getting into right now since it's not related to uh, Unity 3 or C-sharp even. But uh, in this last chapter of the book that provides uh, the reader and listeners in this case with some advice. So the remaining chapters are uh, case studies and how Uncle Bob employs the strategies of clean code, uh, like how he would refactor existing code to be clean. And he shows you um, how to refactor code to uh, clean it with lots and lots of examples. and all, this, all the steps that are, that are involved in this process. It's really nice to read through this, uh, but not so much to make a podcast about. And as I said in the beginning of this chapter, 
it's really difficult to talk about refactorings uh, that he makes and expect people to understand what I'm trying to say just by audio. So if you're interested in checking this out, I strongly encourage you to read the book. Um, I also see that we have been going for over an hour now, uh, so let's wrap this episode up. And the next episode is going to be about alternatives to clean code and making uh, some comparisons uh, to clean code. As I said in the zeroed episode of this podcast, I'm not saying that clean code is the best way or the only way to go. I've also read uh, and learned a lot from books like the original Pragmatic Programmer, Code Complete, and uh, a philosophy of software design, for example. I've read them all and I think clean code is the easiest one to get into as if you're a starting developer, since it's all great advice for juniors and there's lots of like code snippets and examples and refactoring examples and even these case study chapters uh, I'm not going to cover in the podcast. But for the next episode, you can expect me to talk about the alternatives to clean code since I know for a fact there is a lot of pushback against this book. And As I also said before, you can always combine practices from multiple books and modernize certain principles to match the current state of the technology and programming language. So I think we need one more episode to wrap up the Clean Code series. And after that, I'll promise I'll get some guests on the show uh, to do some interviews. I bet that's going to be a lot of fun. So thanks for listening and I hope you learned something from this episode. Please leave me a review on your favorite platform and send me some feedback if you have any. And I'll remind you that negative feedback is feedback as well. And if you don't leave it, I cannot improve. So leave me any kind of constructive feedback. Oh, and I'm still uh, in the process of setting up some affiliate links for Unity 3D. So yeah, I can still not uh, like put a link into the show notes. But yeah, uh, yeah, let's wait up for that a little longer still. So... Yeah, thanks again, and remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game.